What is up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of NC Raw. want to thank those of you who have jumped on board our Patreon page and subscribed. If you have not already, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month by visiting www.patreon.com slash ncraw. All patrons receive exclusive content, uh, early release of all the podcasts, and behind-the-scenes videos. Every week we do a little behind-the-scenes um, chat, a little more of like an informal, just kind of like hangout live live chat, live discussion session um, via the Patreon page. Our, our regular podcast is and always will be um, at no cost. So if you find value in the podcast and you listen regularly and you would like to support us in achieving our long-term goals of opening up a recording studio that doubles as a recovery community center, a place for mem- where members of our community can gather and support each other along this process of recovery and also empower each other to create content just like this podcast. Um, if you can consider doing that, head over to our Patreon page. We would greatly appreciate it. Now, today's guest, uh, this is one I was super excited about. Bo Hess, he is a licensed social worker and clinician out of Asheville. He runs his own private practice, and he also works in a psychiatric clinic working with uh, at an acute psychiatric hospital. Um, he's an awesome dude. He's super knowledgeable. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It went on uh, for a little uh, about two, a little over two hours. I could have talked to him for days, so... Um, he, he's just so full of knowledge. We got into, um, a little bit of social media influence and the effects and impacts it has on kids. And, um, also talked a little bit about addiction and recovery. It was an overall just solid conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope you do as well. So give it up. For my man, Bo Hess. Individual, living a miracle, standing divisible, connected to God and my physical essence of my spiritual presence is visible, totally leaving you unaware of my mental subliminal. Used to be a criminal, living so minimal, but things have changed in my life is going through different intervals. Finding that balance is significantly difficult. Timing is everything, so my timing is critical. Rhyming is literal, the unforgettable. It's why I stand before you impeccably so presentable. I give respect to you, know that I am respectable. I've always wanted acceptance, is that acceptable? I give the rival expected to be exceptional And I'm a grown man, handle business like a professional I am incredible, Leo conventional And you stopping me from chasing my dreams is unprofessional The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. 
Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Ready, set, go. Bo Hess, welcome to NC Raw. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you, man. Thank you, you too. Uh, I think it's like pretty cool how these things kind of like, how the every guest that we book, like the interaction and the um, just the way that like the relationship kind of like begins and kind of cultivates is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a big fan of you and I'll tell you why. Um, I'm not sure when we became friends on social media and like how we got on each other's radar, but I'm a big fan of like the stuff that you share out there, the stuff, the information that you put out there. Mm-hmm. Um, like you're, you put out a lot of like interesting pieces of information mm-hmm. and like I'm one of those guys where like I'll go through and if I see it I just hit like save link and I save it and then I'll go back so like a lot of like a lot of the stuff that you put out there um is is pieces of information that I go personally go back to mm-hmm. and like read into a little bit um so yeah have Thank you ever you. have you ever been out this way to the west side yes have you yeah did you go to school here uh, western carolina you did? Yes. Did you have any classes on this campus? No. No? Or, yes, uh, at Cullowee. At Cullowee? Yes. Okay, cool. That's like mm-hmm. just a couple miles down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I go Cats. I'm Are you? WCU all okay. the way. I always ask people that. It's like the first question I ask them is like, did you go to school out here? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this podcast was founded on that campus, believe it or not. All of our probably first 15 or 20 episodes were recorded in the recording studio in the Belk building. Mm. Um, One of my friends who helped me start this podcast, Mm -hmm. she was in the commercial music production program. Okay. And so Uh when I was, yeah, she was studying to like uh, produce music. Mm -hmm. And when I was in like the planning phases and I was like, told this story a million times on this podcast, but when I was like uh, struggling with this internal struggle with school, mm-hmm. you know, I, I got into college in early recovery um, in 2015. And a lot of the things that I was seeing in the classroom wasn't aligning with what I was seeing in my personal life and the recovery communities. Like classroom kind of paints this nice, pretty picture, mm-hmm. you know, and it just, so like, and I've always been like the rebellious type mm-hmm. to like do things different, mm-hmm. and do things my way. You yeah. know, even my pathway to recovery, I'm a part of the Refuge Recovery Fellowship. Okay. And practice mindfulness and meditation. Okay. I've never been to a 12 step meeting. I've never been to any other type of uh, fellowship outside okay. of really Refuge Recovery. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it just wasn't adding up. Like, I don't know, there was like too many rules and, ethical dilemmas and all this stuff and I was just like questioning like is this really for me mm-hmm. and so I decided like to I did what I thought was the wisest at the time mm-hmm. as opposed to like making a um, impulsive irrational decision and just dropping out of school which I was thinking about doing mm-hmm. I took a step back and I looked at my life and I kind of like contemplated what what were my dreams before my active addiction mm-hmm. what did i want to do if i could go back 20 years and start over yeah what would i do mm-hmm. and i was always into like that starry-eyed boy yeah. looking yeah. up into the sky yeah. you know that's it yeah 
And I was always into, back then it was talk radio. Mm-hmm. I was a big fan of talk radio. Yeah. Like I had a, a show that I listened to religiously in my hometown. Um, and like, that's what I was interested in. Whether it was like, it wasn't necessarily hosting a show, mm-hmm. like the behind the scenes, like how it, how this like theater of the mind comes to life and mm-hmm. comes together. Um, and so I was like, all right, well, how would I start a, podcast about recovery and mental health and being that I'm a kind of a non-traditional pathway to recovery let's talk about the different pathways to recovery and let's talk about like other things just outside of like your fellowship and outside of like what what does life look like mm-hmm. in Bo Hess's world you know mm-hmm. like and so that's kind of like how we got to got to this point yeah um, and I hit up my friend, college girl that I worked with at my part-time job. And I said, Hey, you're in this musical production program. What do you think about a podcast? And, uh, she was all about it. So she got us into the recording studio over there, not thinking people would like tune in and watch us thinking that like, uh, Hey, it's a hobby, put it out there and see what happens. And the community responded. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, one thing led to another and then we were able to fund, Dude, you got a low battery, man. You're at twenty percent already, dude. <laughs> That's typical, is it? Um, and we were able to fund all this equipment and that sort of thing, and here we are today, sixty-two episodes later, having a conversation That's awesome. with you. Yeah, man. So I guess I would like to start off with, um, how did you find yourself studying to become a social worker, and like, what was it about? about that that appealed you appealed to you so um just want to say thank you that was an awesome introduction and thank you for uh paying attention to what's on my social media page um knowledge is power so and that's um i think any of the people i work with on a professional level they'll tell you that i try to impart as much as i know to them, I'll run off articles, I'll send them things, send them links, you know, just give them as much information as possible because I really do believe knowledge is power. So what led me to this is I um, was sitting in a jail cell uh, by myself and it had been uh, two weeks and I didn't know when I was going to be in there. My PO had said, you know what, you, you know, you're getting in. The judge had um, said, you're going to have no bond. And so I was kind of just um, in the moment. I'd never had that experience. But what was so striking to me was a few things. The first thing was I realized that uh, when I called people and uh, – people who I thought were my friends and and things like that, they weren't answering the other side. And that was a a harsh realization for me to realize that, um, that this was, you know, kind of the game that we were playing and it was me. And I was on this path on my own. Like Um, a a sense of like taking some responsibility or more of, I hadn't chosen the right relationships Mm -hmm. I wanted in my life at that point in time. And 
and and it was all a learning experience sure. for me. You know, That's and life. I was young and yeah. I was, you know, but whatever, you know, that was that was the case. And I was a good uh inmate. So they started letting me give out the food and I started mm-hmm wiping down and cleaning up after the meals and the COs would, you know, I got to come out of my cell. And during that time, I would work with different people. And and I was there long enough that I would, like, help and train the people, like, mm-hmm. how to clean the showers or how to do the food or whatever it was. And I would start, so I started talking to everyone. I'd go out during the free time and I would talk and I would hear these stories. And these stories were vastly different than my story. You know, my story was truly just rebelliousness, you know, being dumb, not being effective, um, do wanting to do it my way, and essentially just uh, getting caught in the system and, because it just doesn't work that way. And um, these people, however, um, had heartbreaking stories. Um, and I started to realize that People were in jail, not because they were bad people, um, not because they had, you know, they were evil or anything like that, the vast majority, um, but because they had been thrown into a certain sort of circumstances that Mm -hmm. was like a perfect storm, and this was the way that they were surviving in whatever way, you know, And, and it could just be luck of the draw. You know, I mean, you're driving down the street. Um, you're the fifth car that gets pulled over. You know, I, I mean, just things like that. Um, and I was like, I'm going to law school. You had that uh, that that moment of clarity. Yes. I was like, that's <laughs> it. I'm going to law school. Um, and I started then talking to everybody I could, you know, in there. And uh, and then I got let out and uh, was on did drug court drug treatment court and that was a learning experience and and now looking back I'm friends with you know the the people you know probation officer the coordinator the the people who kind of ran me through the system and really gave me a hard time um gave you some accountability but yeah and but also made me you know it made me I would not be sitting here if it weren't for that experience Mm -hmm. you know so but I did that perfect with flying colors um um and uh then i got into school and i was like i so it went from law school to i want to be a therapist it was like i've always loved psychology i've always wanted to help people was listening to enough stories i felt like i had been given enough in my life just by the grace of god or just by the luck of the draw just in in mind power and 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 emotion and just, just thing like, just, you know, just, I had been blessed in many ways. So I felt like I could give back to people. And so I thought, okay, how do I do this? And so I went to AB Tech and I was like, I want to be a therapist. How do I do that? And they're like, well, you could do three different tracks. And, uh, and then I, and I was, I chose social work, um, and out of counseling or psychology. And, um, the reason why is because I like the psychology aspect, but I like the social justice aspect of it as well. Um, when I did my graduate work, I did a blend. So I did all my required courses in social work, but then I did extra courses during the summer and then during the semester in the counseling and psychology graduate school there. So I had actually 
apply to those schools and, and then take classes there because I wanted my transcript to really read clinical from associates to graduate. I wanted everything to be in, in behavioral health, and it is. And I'm proud of that um, because, um, you know, I just am. I worked hard. <laughs> and uh, it's my dream to be a licensed clinical social worker. And, um, and so, again, I'm just grateful to be here. Yeah. No matter how many times I have these conversations, it, like, always amazes me um, about how these individuals that come to this table, myself included, have these moments of clarity, right? Break, defining moments, make or break moments. And they literally just take that opportunity and run with it, mm-hmm. you know, um, like you did. And like, for some reason, it works that mm-hmm. that time that mm-hmm. go around at it. Yeah. Um, and they really just like, they don't just, it's not like a um, minimal shift in lifestyle or a, a small change. It's like all in. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, and life kind of is a series of moments like that mm-hmm. of like, and they're kind of, when you look back, they're not like these big moments mm-hmm. necessarily, but they're like game changing moments, mm-hmm. you know, and it could propel you in any number of different ways. Yeah. Could be that one probation officer that influenced you or that one mm-hmm. counselor or social worker that had something to say. Mm-hmm. That really, for some reason, it stuck. Uh, well, a lot of it was I was really angry. Uh-huh. Um, so anger is a good motivator. Yeah, if you um, if you have a, a correct relationship to it. Yes, and so uh, that was a huge motivator. Mm-hmm. Um, with that being said, I was able by the end to recognize my stuff. Mm-hmm and own it work with it yeah um and you know that's an ongoing process um but yeah i was angry you know and for for a very uh in a very real sense you know i had something to prove (laughs) and um and so yeah i can remember sitting in the back of a florida highway patrol officer's car Mm. he had just Arrested me for my third driving under the influence charge. Mm-hmm. And I was a hot mess, really fucking angry. Mm-hmm. And he looked in the be- in the rear view mirror at me and he said, son, he said, I, I could have just saved your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was so mad at that moment. However, you know, 48, 72 hours later, I was so grateful mm-hmm. that he said that. And those words like stuck with me mm-hmm. to the point where um, a couple years later, you know, I dropped a letter in the mail thanking mm-hmm. him for leaving that impression on me and letting him know that he probably did save my life because mm-hmm. I was able to make a change in the way I was living. Um, haven't spoken to him since then, but... And I didn't hear back from him. I sent it to the the office, mm-hmm. the dispatch office that he was based out of in Ocala, Florida. Um, but it was just just his just those words, just that those four words. I, I could have saved your life. 
you mm-hmm. know, really like left a, a lasting impression. What was upon graduation? Mm-hmm. What, what did that feel like walking across that stage? Surreal. Um, one point I want to make to the, what you just said is I was able to really thank the people who put me through that, the DA, the judges, the, the coordinator, um, and, and really thank them and, and say, look, in a very real sense, you got me here. That wasn't necessarily your intention maybe at that point, but thank you. And you're also thanking them by being a leader in the community right now. <laughs> right? I'm <laughs> you wear many hats, dude. You sent yeah. me a bio. You wear many hats. Yeah, I yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm busy. Come on, come I on. I'm tooting your horn now. Come on. <laughs> so, but uh upon graduation, it was very surreal. Mm-hmm. And I just I was happy to be done. But also I was like, okay, now it's job. Time you know, to get to work. work. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I graduated with my graduate degree on Friday and literally walked into my job on Monday. Uh, uh I so yeah. And that was fun. Yeah. What was in the in the early days? What what kind of work were you doing? Uh, I was a server. Okay. Yeah. So I worked in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to all those people at Pasana uh, <laughs> downtown. They and they put up with a lot. You mm-hmm. know, um, Peter and Martha Polay. They worked through every schedule I had. Um, worked through the time. You know, saved my job when I was in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, just was there for me. Those are the kind of people that we were just talking about. Yeah. Like leave that type of impression. Yeah. Without them, I could not have done it. They see something in you. Yeah. Right. That they like, they're investing in their people Mm -hmm. and they see something in you that you don't even see, but they're willing to like make those, um, make those adjustments or whatever, you know, to, to empower you mm-hmm. to like get through the things that you're going through. Mm-hmm. It's a tough world out there, man. There's not a lot. It's like, it's like what you do on a daily basis. But they're doing that, you know, in that type of environment. You mm-hmm. know, they're like, um, God, it's beautiful. And serving tables really was great. Um, training for this. Yeah. I had to, kind of keep a game face on. I had to be nice to people. I dealt with all sorts of people. It was high stress, very um, uh, fast paced. It's a very um, valuable skill set mm-hmm. that's totally applicable to what you're doing today. Oh, yeah. Just people skills. Yeah. Interacting with the general public. Yeah. Um, I was always like growing up, like I was always like super shy mm. and I always felt like I didn't fit in and mm-hmm. like, I just didn't like have like confidence and social skills and mm-hmm. stuff. And when I was 16, my dad was like, Hey, if you get a job, I'll, uh, I'll help you buy a car. And like, uh, in my mind, I'm like, if I have a car, I can smoke weed and chase girls around town. So I jumped, jumped up and went and got a job working retail mm-hmm. and like that retail job did more for like my social skills and my self-confidence because I was forced to talk to people Mm -hmm. that I didn't know and forced to uh, like earn their trust and cultivate a relationship in a short period of time. Yep. Um, Very practical skills that I like 
made me who I am today. Oh yeah. You know, and I still work retail here 25 years later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, really because I like it. Yeah. It's just a part-time job while I'm in school, but it's really just because I like it. Yeah. It's the same type of relationship with your customer base in the restaurant industry. And now you're applying those skills in your clinical type settings. Right. What do you do? What kind of work do you do today? So, um, I am a licensed psychotherapist and addiction specialist, a busy, acute psychiatric ward. Um, we typically run, um, eight to nine, uh, caseload. Um, at my day job, it's very acute there. So my patients, um, range from homicidal, suicidal to catatonic, um, and kind of everything in between. And um, I like it. It's fun. I have a small private practice downtown. Um, I uh, am a staff consult uh, uh, for the crisis line at Our Voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a co-chair in organizing the law enforcement assisted diversion program here in Buncombe County with the DA's office. Um, Let's see what else. I think that's about it. Um, yeah. Um, so many hats. Yeah, it's it's fun. I love it, mm-hmm. and that's the thing. Um, I'm very passionate. I like helping people. Um, every one of those things is different, you know. So, you know, working at where I work during the day is just intense it's full you know on you walk in i mean it's doctors nurses patients i mean it's hands-on it's 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 everything Mm -hmm. um and then my private practice i get to pick who comes in um and or not pick but you know more screen screen who comes in and i keep a very just very small caseload um and i try to move them you know you know I am not one of these therapists that's like, oh, we're going to do like a year of therapy or that we can do that. And I do have patients there, but typically people come in for a specific issue. So social media addiction, substance use, you know, they're having an issue with whatever it is. Come in. All right, let's 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 get this under control in six weeks and let's go from there. Um and typically, we can see resolution in that. Um, I've been certified in accelerated resolution therapy, which is um, kind of my um, ace that I have. You know, so I use a CBT DBT kind of blend, and then we incorporate accelerated resolution therapy in there, which is EMDR kind of on steroids, not EMDR. So EMDR was created in like mid '90s. So this is. Um, 2009 2010 went through rigorous studies walter reed um and it's the only therapy for trauma that um targets images and erases images and it is works yeah works amazingly um it worked on me um during our training it was a pretty rigorous training we had to do an experiential piece so we had to do two sessions ourselves um that uses rapid eye movement Um, and it's more of a procedure. Some of my patients come in for that. I say, look, this, you know, these past sessions, the DBT structured, 
but this is more like a root canal. So you come in and it's like kind of more guided. There's a certain set of eye movements that we use and um, can get people back to work um, and work with chronic pain, substance use, depression, pornography addiction. I mean, just yeah. one session, you know, typically with that's that. A, that's amazing. So phobias, you know, mm-hmm. you are... a afraid of flying cats dogs uh, driving the last one i did was someone who was afraid of driving one session she said i always cancel on this person and you know a person that is not young who had never had a license i called her and she's like i'm on the way to go meet my driving i mean she's driving like hours at a time and i'm even like okay are you messing with me Um, but it's just another tool that I have, which makes me feel more confident, especially with trauma. How many I, people are, are using that? Out? How many therapists? 36 certified clinicians in North Carolina. Okay. Most of them are concentrated in Western North Carolina because uh, that's where we were trained. All trained in, kind of together. They're mostly in military installations. It's usually used for first responders and, and combat trauma. Mm-hmm. That's who it was made for and, and studied with. So I've done childhood trauma, motor vehicle accidents, one session. Um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, and, and I think everyone has their modality. And, and um, I really wanted to be trained in EMDR. I really just was trying to find the right training and um, went to my employer and said, hey, can you, can you train, send me to this training? They said no. And so I said, okay. But then they came back and said, hey, we have this. Okay. And I said, okay, this is, uh, and I like this. <clears throat> and so it's kind of like one of those things. Like I'm, I'm almost grateful that that didn't work out the way that I wanted it to work out because I feel like this is uh, just a more uh, refined tool. Yeah, so this wasn't necessarily even on your radar no. initially. No, I had, in fact, so... I got trained by the founder, which is pretty cool. Um, but the first batch of training, I declined to go. And here you are. Because I said, I didn't, I, yeah. I, you know, I didn't understand it. Uh-huh. It was kind of like mindfulness, actually. Yeah. Like when I was in my DBT training, the mindfulness stuff was the, the last to click. You know, I was like, what? I was like, my patients want to kill themselves. I can't mm-hmm. ask them to observe. What are you talking about? You know? So, um, then I started reading into it, and the therapist that did go came back, and they were using it on their patients. Their patients are getting better, and I'm thinking, okay, let me check this out. There came another training, and I was, and it just worked out. So what's the difference between just traditional EMDR and this? So we target images. Mm-hmm. So we are the only one that targets images. There's no containment. So usually in one session, we can get at it. It's a very protocol. There's no you know, putting it in a box and putting it in a shelf or anything. And that's, mm-hmm. we do that in DBT a lot, you know, that, that mm-hmm. kind of imagery. And we can talk a lot about the science about the imagery and imagination. I think it's really fascinating. But um, we target images and we target problems and we target the whole thing versus EMDR targets, you know, ups, one aspect of that or one scene mm-hmm. or one image. I don't think it does an image. I think it does a scene or something of that nature. And then there's containment. So it's not resolved. Like Typically, I want to resolve. 
if it's on domestic violence, substance use, anything like that, I might do two sessions in a week. Um, but even that's intense, right? Yeah, two in a week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and but by the second week, pretty much they're kind of good to go, and it's and it's onward. And sometimes people come in. You know, I had one guy say, I, you know, I want to um, uh, propose to my wife. I just don't. I don't know. I said, let's 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 knock on your brain's door. Let's let's see what 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 is there. Came up and 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 they're engaged. Wow. And so it what the eye movements do is kind of activate both hemispheres of the brain mm-hmm. and kind of activate that out of awareness subconscious kind of sounds too wooey for me, but kind of below conscious awareness gets at that, clears that block, if you will. Um, You know, and how it works with trauma is, you know, every time that we remember something, we we put it back in our brain a little bit different than, than how we actually brought it back out. And so during that kind of reconceptualization phase, we rewrite that image, we erase the image, and then we replace the image in, in what's called the director scene. And so, for example, if you were feeling anxious or anything like that, or uh, you had a craving, um, we could do a set of eye movements, it would go away. Um, so we could move sensations, chronic pain, things like that. But for a full session, we would do like your whole, how you, your, you know, depression, a typical day. Or for a trauma, we would do the childhood or we would do a motor vehicle accident. How um, have you measured like long-term effects? Like have you had uh, clients return year, multiple years down the road? Is it like permanent resolution? Yeah. So far? Like, yeah. No. Mm-hmm. So for an ongoing problem, you know, you might have to do a couple, you know. So, for example, say you're in a domestic violence situation and you do a session. A month later, you get assaulted again. You might, your system might get reactivated. Mm-hmm. And so you might, say, have heartburn or have some sort of kind of physical um, response to that. Um, you may, you may want to go back and get a tune-up. But that's pretty typical mm-hmm. for most psychotherapies. Um, you want to do a check-in or a tune-up, um, and uh, but but most of the time it's you know for these kind of single events or things like that, it's one or two sessions. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it's always an assessment mm-hmm. session. How did you happen to? Are you aware of like the? Um, research that maps is doing Mm -hmm. the mdma assisted psychotherapy Mm -hmm. did you hear any of that podcast that i did with i did not the trainer actually i kind of saw some stuff yeah they're doing um they're training therapists in Mm -hmm. asheville Mm -hmm. because they plan on opening a clinic like Mm -hmm. next year um what do you think about all that the research and stuff so the oh so I will say that anything that helps, let's research it. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out how the best way to to administer it. You know the um, the early recovery people in AA used LSD. 
Yeah. The guy who wrote the big book. Mm-hmm. That's how he became sober. Yeah. Um, so these, are, this isn't like new necessarily. I think we were in a time politically, right, for for a number of reasons. Um, when I educate my patients on this too, because I think, again, knowledge is power. They need to understand what, what's going on and, and what forces are at play here. But, you know, there was a time that we stopped that and anything that helps. The issue with MDMA, though, is that MDMA is pretty harsh on your body, mm-hmm. um, whereas LSD and psilocybin really have a minimal effect physically uh, on your body. Um, so that would be my kind of um, hesitation there. Um, but I think there's a way, and there could be a way, again, with with technology to administer it, you yeah. know, um, in a way that maybe isn't so mm-hmm. harsh. You know, the studies that I've looked at with psilocybin, LSD for tobacco, nicotine use, yeah. and um, alcohol use are, are like in the 70s and 80s. Um, it sounded like that's essentially what's common is that like once they get this um, clinical trials finished with the MDMA kind of will open the door for other psychedelic research and that's already being done, but to mm-hmm. be more looked at thoroughly. Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you yep. read that, mm-hmm. but it yeah. really outlines oh, yeah. Um, the history that yep. you described yep. in, in great detail Oh yeah, um, about exactly what happened because uh, there were many factors that contributed to the um, abrupt halt in the research. Yeah, well, the, <laughs> they got fired at Harvard. Yeah. They went to, mm-hmm. they went overseas. I mean, mm-hmm. we could, I, mean, I could yeah. talk all, I mean, I know a lot about, you know, I did my graduate work on cannabis and okay. mental health. So, um, you know, for better or for worse, I know a lot about the cannabinoid system and, 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 and that. And so, um, but yeah, they, they came back, they had changed their names <laughs> and, um, they got fired by Harvard and it was a huge uproar. And then all the, the, the scientists at Harvard had kind of a, um, bad taste in their mouth against anything that was mindfulness or meditation or, or, or different states. What I would say though, and is that, you know, careful about the psychedelic kind of quick fix because there are other brain states like meditative states or mindfulness yeah. states or all states or trance states or prayer states that really have the same neuroelectrical, neurofunctioning, neurophysiology that psychedelics do. And so, for example, holotropic breathing, um, hollow meaning to turn and tropic inward, was created by the head LSD researcher at John Hopkins. And just, you know, I teach my patients a a version of this combat breathing or tactical breathing. And um, basically, it is a way to change your consciousness. And he created those lines of breathing because the government had outlawed um, research on LSD at that time. He had invested all this time and he needed to create something that was um, identical essentially to LSD. Something that'll give you so the breathing. same mind states yes. through a so natural like, process. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I have patients who are like, well, but Bo, you know, cannabis <laughs> or yeah. mushrooms or LSD and, 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 I'm, ne- I'm never the therapist, and I think you could tell 
ask any of my patients, I never have wagged my finger at any of them. You know, mm-hmm. my job, and I, I'll say this, I said, look, my job is to give you the information and then help you kind of decide your route. Mm-hmm. But if this is something that you don't want to work on right now, that's okay. Let's just mm-hmm. put it that other side and let's focus on what, what you want to work on. And so... Um, and that, that perspective in itself is just super empowering to the client. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and everybody, that, you know, and I don't think there's one prescribed way to be in recovery, you know, just as you were saying. Go ahead and say that one more time for me. <laughs> I don't think that there's any one prescribed way to be in recovery. You know, I think that recovery path is different for everyone, and as it should be. Mm-hmm. And um, because different intrinsic motivations are motivating us, right? And there's different reasons why we engage in these dysfunctional behaviors. And so identifying that individually and then figuring out, okay, where do you want to go? Where do you want to be? What do you want to work on? Where, what does, is this something, you know, like with my social media people, like, is, do you want to completely delete this? Is this something that you want to get more control of? Time-wise, you know, what what is your goal here? Um, so my short answer to your question is I support any research into anything that, that I think could benefit people who are struggling and suffering. Um, there's too much suffering. Period. There's too much struggling out there. I see people who don't even realize, don't even know there's people like me out there, mm-hmm. that there's medicines out there, that there's um, that they don't have to be gripped with social anxiety or depression or that they that there are really concrete skills and techniques that we can use to get you s- to stop doing whatever you're doing. Well, for so many years media television the movies have kind of cast this perspective of what a therapist is and what therapy looks like yeah right um and they couldn't be probably farther from the truth in reality especially with like all of the these um techniques and things that you just kind of have described tonight like how do you overcome that fear of just walking in and talking to somebody you know so this is like you said how nobody not many people know that people like you are out there you know like how do you overcome that because i i had a really negative experience yeah with the therapist probably four years before i found recovery and like had he um been more hmm I don't even know how to say it, but how he had our interaction gone differently. Um, you know, my life could be totally different. I could have found recovery four or five years prior. It kind of like put a bad taste in my mouth. What was it? Um, you know, I was doing a lot of cocaine and I was staying out all night Mm -hmm. and my girlfriend at the time, um, did we lived together for like seven years and she did not approve of drug use period. She was a bartender. Mm -hmm. She seen too many people get, go down that road. And so she did not approve of drug use. However, I was a heavy cocaine user. Mm -hmm. So I did it all like behind her back and like I would stay out all night and get hotel rooms and just party my ass off. 
And I like, after doing that and her causing a lot of harm on her, mm -hmm. I approached my employer and I was like, I need to get some help. My HR manager helped me book a, um, a session with a therapist through our employee assistance program. Yeah. And I went in there and I, for the first time in my life, I was completely honest with this man. Yeah. I told him everything. Like, I'm really fucking up. Yeah. These are all the things that I'm doing. You know, I don't know what to do. I, the word recovery never came out of my mouth, but I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't, I just know that I'm like causing her a lot of harm. I know that I shouldn't be staying out all night doing drugs and crashing in hotel rooms and all this stuff. And after like an hour and a half conversation, he said, he was like, well, um, essentially he said that put the blame, he kind of put the blame on her my girlfriend and told me that she needs to hold me accountable and that she shouldn't be taking me. She shouldn't be taking me back and allowing me to come home after a three day binge and accepting that and that she needed to have more boundaries and that everything was okay. <laughs> you know, that there was nothing wrong with me that the problem was with her. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, um, that's it. Like, okay really like that you know i was expecting like just something like um i have a heavy cocaine use problem he heavy cocaine use like you know and so it just left a bad taste in my mouth so, so like, yeah i think that the, would the behaviors continued for many years well because well because behavioral things need behavioral interventions mm -hmm. so the first session i give my patients skills like we're already like skills where I work during the day. I mean, I have to do that because we just on, on a time limit. Mm -hmm. So it's like building rapport, you know, figuring out what we're there and, 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 and going, going at it. Um, so yeah, that, that, that would leave a bad taste in my mouth. Um, so I guess back the, to the original, it's just well, like the, how. So the okay. one thing about media and the one thing about media and recovery and addiction and substance use specifically is that there seems to be this idea that your masculinity, especially for men, I run two DBT mm -hmm. men's groups. Um, or, you know, my private practice, I'm pretty, probably have more females than men, but they come in and, uh, and there is this overarching theme that, if I can't drink enough or if I can't do these drugs like X, these people, then somehow that is a front to my masculinity. Mm -hmm. I'm guilty of that. Or I was guilty of that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, it, and I help my patients to understand that actually, you know, let's take a step back. You know, let's, let's observe. Okay. Where does that, like, where does that idea come from? You know, where did we actually get that idea? And, you know, one of my patients said, well, uh, they have all the beer commercials and they have a bunch of pr uh, pretty girls around around them. Bingo. Mm -hmm. Right? So we're implicitly being taught these things. Right? When, in fact, what really makes you a man is how well you're taking care of your body. How well you're taking care of your girlfriends, your boyfriends, your wives, your husbands, the people in your life that you love. How well you're taking care of your children, 
how well you're taking care and being a steward to your society and your environment and your community. Um, and when that kind of comes out of, because they, you know, this is, you know, we, we all know there's something up. We can feel it. Right. We're, we, we can, it's like the silent weapon. Like we know it's grating at us, you know, and we physically are direct reflections of, of the earth. You know, guaranteed. Yeah. And so, you know, you are made up of the same vitamins, minerals, metals of the earth, magnesium. You know, you look at the bo- back of your cereal box or your granola or whatever, <laughs> you know, zinc, copper, yeah, magnesium, <laughs> iron. Those are, those are metal. You are made up of the earth, you know? And so just like, you know, when you're mining the best parts of the earth, gold, diamonds, oil, you know, you're going to get toxic pollution. And the mining process has gotten more refined. And so as they mine our mind, as they mine our hearts, as they mine our souls and our spirits, we're going to get toxic pollution. We're going to get loneliness. We're going to get addiction. We're going to get depression. We're going to get anger because we're constantly being drilled at right every time we look at at our phones or at the screen it's someone else is having fun someone else is living life someone else is graduating getting married someone else is getting married and having kids getting a promotion and we start feeling less than, like we're not enough, you know? And then you really start kind of taking a step back and you look at these folks uh, who, these men, again, you know, what are we, um, there's this, I don't even know, I don't even want to say his name, but there's this guy who um, is an entrepreneur and he, his Instagram is just him um, with like very scantily clad women around him. And he's like, you know, he, I think of one, he's, his legs are like on her back. Like he's, she's a piece of furniture, just very objectification. Is he a poker player? No. Okay. Um, I know a poker player. But, does that too. <laughs> but to me, that looks like mommy issues. Like I'm like, when I see that, I think, oh, Wow. This is a man who can't stand on his own, right? Who needs half-naked women, apparently. To, I mean, when you really take a step back, you're like, and, and my men are like, well, Bo, you know, you don't really, and I, and I say, think of it this way. Think of me. And I am, have half-naked men, and I have my legs on them, and I'm taking pictures, I'm putting it on Instagram. What would, like... Do you, do you see, or vice versa, or a woman? I mean, we would, a woman or doing that to a man, I mean, that's just so odd. And, and it's so odd that men in particular, and again, going back to this, you know, idea here is that they are sad, they're depressed, they're angry because that's not them. 
Imagine what that girl feels like too. That's being treated like a piece of furniture. Well, women have a whole totally different set of challenges, you know, when it comes to media. I mean, every time women look at the uh, the media, it's you're not pretty enough, you're not skinny enough, you're not rich enough, you're not smart enough. They're constantly telling women men make more than them. Um, you know, you ask a man, when's the last time you felt afraid for your life? They're going to say, you know, two years ago when, you know, I was in Afghanistan. They're going to say, um, six months ago when I had a breakup, my buddies fight, you know, whatever it is, you ask a woman that they're going to say today at the grocery store, right? At the grocery the store, they're going to say yeah. yesterday, mm-hmm. So women have a whole different set of challenges. And, 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 and really, and again, and I get so, and not to talk politics, and I think most people that know me, I, you know, I'm very independent and I'm very, you know, there's, I, I, I try to see the dialectic in things and I'm a DBT therapist. And so I try to see the truth in both sides, right? And I get so... Um, irritated with you know the left quote unquote because they can be politically correct and politically correct kills people right when we don't want to get in an elevator with someone because we don't want to think we don't want them to think that we're not gender biased or racist in some way and then you know (laughs) no one ever got hurt by being a little bit of a Mm bee Right. And some and, you know, it's okay to say no to the person, that guy who offers to bring in your groceries. And I think teaching your children that especially, you know, teaching our children that it's okay to say no, you know, and people who are charming. Charm is an ability. You got charmed. Right. Mm -hmm. No one ever got into a kidnapper's car because they were mean to them when they pulled up. Right. They were nice to them. You know, and and, that, and that's the idea here. And um, anyway, so a note for women and note for everyone on safety. There's this, um, anytime anyone gives you a false promise, okay, that's a heads up, okay? So this looks like this. Um, a guy asks you to bring in your groceries or do something for you. And you get to your door, and he says, I can put them put them in. And you're like, no, it's okay. And he goes, I'll leave right after, I promise. Mm-hmm. Had red flags should go up. Okay? Because what that person is already saying is, I already know that you are unsure about me, and I'm trying to reassure you. So those that two things, so charm. You'll hear that charm, so often. Yeah, yeah, charm. Don't be fooled by niceness or charm. Because charm is a verb. Charm, you know, champ. Charm. It's also a skill that's very yes. common in the substance use. Like we we develop, I mean, I'm guilty of it, you know, but we develop that skill of charm throughout like the years of. Well, you, get, um, you had to get what you yeah. needed mm-hmm. and wanted. Yeah. And so under, so using, so here's the trick, using that for. To gain. Mm-hmm. Benevolent reasons, mm-hmm. right? So get further in your career or do instead of manipulate, you know. Um, 
it's interesting. You know, you're blowing my mind, Bohes. You are. I think that's that's it's things that like um, many folks are just unaware of, both on both sides of it. Men in doing those actions, and the 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 women who are somewhat vulnerable to that type of um, kind of manipulation or charm. Scary. Oh, yeah. You know, you look back at, um, you know, the serial killers, right? They were charming, attractive for the most part. Um, you know, but you have very real differences for men, especially white heterosexual men, than you do for women of any persuasion and minorities, of course. Um, so you're going to get different transgendered people, uh, gay men. Um, one thing I would say is when you are trying to, so I work with people with trauma and we've disconnected from our bodies in trauma and to even feel or to get into our body or be mindful is scary, but reconnecting with intuition especially with the women I work with is so key because that you know our intuition is our gut you know we have more neurons there than a dog has in its brain and a lot of our neuro uh transmitters and our and our center in our gut we have dopamine serotonin we have everything kind of there so you get a really you know how many times have you just known something was right mm -hmm. or something was not right you just get a funny feeling you get a funny feeling mm -hmm. and you might get a funny feeling you, you look around your environment and you say okay i got a funny feeling about this person or this car or this situation and you're like okay but no we're good you know it's just i'm a little scared of this you know um for example like air flying on the airplane. So you might say, okay, I'm scared of airplanes. You're walking through the airport and you get that, oh shit, I don't, I don't feel good about this, right? So a way to kind of judge this and to see if this is kind of leaning on the side of, okay, is this accurate or not, is was there anything in your environment that triggered that, right? So if you're just walking through the airport, things are humdrumming as usual, and you have that, and typically you have that every time you get in the airport. I, I kind of have that. You know, even though I come from, my dad was in the Air Force, I was around planes all my life, I still have a little apprehension on a plane. I think it's because the human aspect of it. And then, but once I'm on there, it's fine. I'm fun. You know, mm -hmm. it's awesome. That's different than you're walking through the airport, things are humdrumming as usual, you see the captain walk out of the employee lounge, kind of disheveled, kind of looking a little bloodshot, and then you get this feeling, oh, I don't know, something's up. So that is intuition. And pay attention. So if something is in your environment that triggers it, pay attention. Um, and that I try to tell, especially women you know you're walking down the street it's dark you've walked down the street before nothing kind of you know you get this kind of fear you look around it's safe you make it to your door you're fine you are walking down the street it's the same street you've gone through it's dark you you see 
a man standing and he kind of looks back and kind of looks forward and kind of is just kind of stalling in front of your doorstep. Then you get this intuition or this fear. No, I'm going to go past my apartment, not let him know that I live there, or I'm going to turn around and walk the other way. I don't like rules. Like I don't like saying, oh, we'll just cross the street, do this, you know, because that gives the false sense that you're safe, you know, so do whatever is needed in that situation. Another key thing is don't ever get into a, you know, don't ever move to a second place with someone. You know, um, oftentimes we'll go blank, you know, we'll kind of just go limp, you know, someone puts a gun to your head, get in the car, da da da. You'd be surprised how many people, what? Get in. Get in that car. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. Fight with everything you have in that, in that moment. Again, no, no hard and fast rules, but typically if they're telling you to don't scream, what should you do? Scream. Yep. They tell you don't move. What should you do? Go. Yep. They tell you stay still. Do the opposite of mm -hmm. everything they're telling you because what they're telling you is, hey, you do that. You're putting me at a disadvantage, mm -hmm. right? So you got to kind of get into the mind of that. It's kind of like that promise that you yes. hit on. It's just like it. Yeah. It takes like to really like be in tune with your intuition what you just described to me is like a level of awareness, like a mind, Situational mindful awareness, yeah. kind of like yeah. being able to tell the difference between an irrational thought and a um, real concern, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so I guess I would like to know like this mindfulness stuff, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What kind of role does that play in like what you do? And, well, so you go ahead. And how did like how did you become familiar with? So DBT, dialectical mm -hmm. behavior therapy. I think probably so. Maybe back in the day, you know, in you know, just kind of, you know, living, um, you know, having certain experiences, mm -hmm. um, and you know, having you know, just kind of being aware. Um, but it wasn't till I was in this work that I really, really understood and grasped kind of the, the benefit of it. Um, do you meditate regularly? Oh, oh yeah. So, mm -hmm. so here's the thing, here's the thing about mindfulness and meditation is that what I teach and what I practice and to my patients is this kind of, you know, there's two kinds, you know, you just sit still. You know, you could even do a mantra or some sort of affirmation. Love that, mm -hmm. and, we, and we can do that. But this mindfulness, we focus on six skills. You know, observe, describe, participate, um, non-judgmental, effectively, and, and one mindfully. And so these skills we virtually can do at all times. You don't have to have your eyes closed sitting down. To no. Do, mm -hmm. You know, so... Um, Whereas the other one is in like focusing on your breath and sensations of your body is kind of like it's a practice in developing that skill to do it when you're not sitting with your eyes yeah yeah i mean I, I could see that i could there i don't know if you have to have one as a prerequisite for the other yeah. but but i think they're both beneficial yeah. and some people kind of more can get you know some people it's just not gonna they're not gonna sit still you know mm -hmm. or, or do something to that effect but what I teach is just mindfulness is a fancy way of saying how to control your attention. So purposefully controlling your attention. So for example, I'm sitting here talking with you. I start, I all of a sudden observe my stomach growling, right? 
So then I say, uh, okay. So the idea here is is keeping awareness open but not controlling what you see. So, oh, my stomach growled. Okay, describe it growled. All right, and then noticing that I got off topic and then bringing my attention back to this moment. So if I'm focused on this cup, I think about, you know, some some cute person I saw on the way here. I notice I'm thinking about that and then I just bring my attention back mm -hmm. there. And every time, and it's and the dialectic here is that you need to get distracted and pull your attention back in order for the mindfulness to get stronger. It's like working out. The moment of mindfulness is not focusing on the cup. It's noticing that you are distracted. Exactly. And then bringing your mind back to whatever you're focused on. Mm -hmm. And so that's the key. If you can just get that. So so one thing I, I say is, okay, um, I, I, so bump, ba da dun 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 right? Mm -hmm. Or I say, I'm going to say a word, you say a word. Up. Uh, down. Hot. Cold. Right? Okay. What? So what did you have for lunch yesterday? Two hot dogs. Okay. You can do mindfulness. You just mm -hmm. did it. So the first example was our hot is that girl not texting us back. Our cold is me going and with my buddies and using and not making it to work and going down that cycle. Right? That's an mm -hmm. unmindful reaction. Mm -hmm. Right? Our up is getting fired from the job. Down is cutting, right? So we have these unmindful things versus when I asked you what you had for lunch yesterday, I literally saw your eyes go back into yeah. your brain uh -huh. and you had to think and control your attention and pull it. That, mm -hmm. you just did it. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. Yeah. Well, like so many people, because mindfulness these days is so like... Woohoo! Yeah, hippie, trippy, cliche, yeah, and everybody's. It you can know. be, and so like, but well, well, I, most Buddhist monks don't meditate. They, that's correct. Yeah, that's very correct. I think like something like only like ten percent yeah, of very Buddhists small. actually yeah. meditate. V very small amount. Um, but I've been with Refuge Recovery since, since in meditating since that moment that officer locked me in a jail cell. Mm -hmm. right? oh, I started yeah. meditating. You almost have to. And so, like, that's become a part of my life and a formal practice. Sit down for 20 minutes. And we do both. We do uh, mindfulness. We're just focusing on your breath and focusing on your body. Drift off. Come back. Just over and over for 20 minutes. And we also do what we call, like, heart practices, meta stuff, where you're yeah. a mantra of kindness, mm -hmm. a mantra of compassion, mm -hmm. a mantra of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. um, and those two, in combination, have really been, like, the foundation of my recovery. And so rolling through Bible Belt, Western North Carolina, like many folks that I talk to are quite fearful of um, that developing that skill mm -hmm. and t intentionally setting out the time and even trying it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but whereas like what you're teaching is something that's more receptive to that, formal tra mindful training that I was talking about. We're sitting on the cushion for 20 minutes. Um, that DBT type is definitely something that like you can teach to anybody. Right. So observing, right. Yeah. So just literally keeping your eyes open. Mm -hmm. Right. And how you do, so what you do is observe, describe, participate, how you do those things are non-judgmentally effectively and one mindfully. 
So I observe non-judgmentally. I don't, you know, someone just slammed the door. Okay, mm-hmm. I don't, that's okay. You know, just, that's just what's happening, right? I describe it and then I, I'm here, I participate. Mm-hmm. You know, but just observing, you know, I get angry, someone bumps into me, someone, you know, cuts me off on the road and I have that anger, just actually observing and naming cuts down the electroactivity in your amygdala by 50%. So you say to yourself, for example, I'm fucking pissed off right now. I don't know if we can cuss. But so you, you, you be yourself, my I, brother. Um, there ain't no filter on here. I, uh, so, you know, I'm, 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 I'm angry right now or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So you just that. And that's one of the things. And non-judgmentally, not, not saying, you know, or, you know, I'm angry right now. And, oh, I'm working on my anger and I shouldn't be angry. And, and, and You're I angry. knew this therapy wouldn't work for me. And these drugs don't fucking work and nothing works. And, and so we go down this rabbit hole. Angry because you're angry. Right. And every time, right, because and that's where social work comes in here, is that every time you think we see things in systems, every time you think a negative thought, you have an immediate neurobiological marker. So mm-hmm. you produce cortisol. You have a positive thought, your reward system gets activated. You, you know, mm-hmm. your body is attacked, and the same thing. So in DBT, we have skills that we have body skills that, because sometimes you're so far into your emotions, you know, you have been swept away. The idea here is you're wading out into the ocean and not to be swept away by the waves. You know, big mm-hmm. waves coming, all right, observe it, all right, here we go, let's lose our skills, mm-hmm. and we made it through. But sometimes we get swept away, mm-hmm. okay? And Go ahead. How do you learn from the moments when you get swept away? Being not noticing, observing, describing, mm-hmm. and not judging. And I think, and I tell my patients this: if there's one thing, if there's one thing I want you to get out of therapy, it's this idea of non-judgment. That's fucking hard. Oh, when you're thinking about yourself all the time, oh. why me? How could why I? Me? Yeah, uh-huh. you, you, you know, you, I hate this group. This hospital sucks. You suck. You know, this skill sucks. This food sucks. Everything sucks. You know, you're judging. You know, some people just judge externally. Some mm-hmm. judge internally. Some are equal opportunity judges. You just judge everything, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Yes, and, and all of these skills seem on the outset very simple. But when you actually try to apply them, they're hard. But like going to the gym, like working out, the more you apply it, the more you work out, the more you build that muscle, the stronger it gets. And then soon you turn this trait into a state. So one day you're, and I'm sure, you know, one day you're all of a sudden just being, I mean, you're just like mindful. You're in the moment, right? And, and before you had to be more like, okay, let me use this skill or let me do that. You had to more consciously put it together. And, you know, the, the, there's that four, you know, I teach in this, there's the four levels of learning. Right now in early recovery, you don't even know what it's like to live without your anxiety or your depression or cravings because you've never done that before. Like, so you're in unconscious incompetence. You don't even know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And then and then so the next level is when you start getting to recovery, you start going to some meetings, you're like, oh, okay, there is a whole nother life out there, but I don't know how to fucking live that life. And that looks kind of weird. So you're in conscious incompetence where you know, okay, there's a different life out there. Then you go to conscious competence. So that's where you get enough skills, you get enough stuff together, and you're like, all right, um, all right, I'm feeling a craving. Let me get my ice. All right, let me, let me call my brother. Let me call my sponsor. Let me do whatever it is that I need to do. And then you go to unconscious competence, like getting into a car. 
right? That's where you're just like, I got this, right? It just becomes part of your part of you. And and that is how recovery works. The, and, and, and how I, you know, I teach you, I said, look, the idea, because some of my patients are looking at me like, what the? <laughs> I can imagine. Like, I, what? I can yeah. live without anxiety or whatever yeah. it is. And it's like, it seems crazy right now, but just stick with me, yeah. you know? And somewhere in that, like, transition, in that learning process, in that transition, like, a wave of emotions hits you and you start getting the feeling back and then, oh, that's uncomfortable. You know, I have to feel this, you know? Mm-hmm. Bo said to... Both said to recognize it, but it sucks, you know? Well, and one thing I find, and people have told me, and that I think is uh, m- true, is that we think we're handling life and our emotions when we're using well, mm-hmm. but really they're actually more, exa- they're more exaggerated and they're more intense. And it's when we take a step back, we've kind of cleared out our system, we've had a chance to not have anything... Uh, foreign in and you're like oh wait but it, once you've hit a certain point you're like I can handle this anger this isn't actually so bad like I'm not gonna be this would this normally would have torn me apart but now I'm in a different p- point that I'm able to handle my life and my emotions and I think again there comes a point where you know and I think the majority of like people think that the majority of people use drugs and drink alcohol and that just isn't true the majority of people actually don't use drugs and the majority of people don't use alcohol it's a actually a, a very small minority of alcohol drinkers that drink 78% of the alcohol and so this idea again media the idea that, that everybody's getting high or that everybody is doing drugs or that you know everyone's drinking or is just not accurate um again if we run into certain circles though if we're in a if we're in a drug culture it's going to appear that it, everybody's exactly. drinking yeah exactly um let's get on to that back to that media thing like yeah the, like at this point right today mm. in 2019 yes like all of the things that you have described tonight, the influence that uh, media, social media, television, movies, music, all of the above plays on us, like uh, the ship has sailed, right? Like there's no turning back from what, no, they, it, what they are attempting to do. No, I what mean, we have AI. Are. You know, no, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. So like what, how do we protect ourselves? How do we protect our children? Mm. Most importantly, you know, like my girlfriend's got a five-year-old. All the things that you just described to me about masculinity and things like that scares the shit out of me, dude. You know, like how do we, how do we approach our children in a way that they can understand this type of influence and like the the effects that it plays. So wow. So, this could, <laughs> so all right, I got nothing but time, brother. So here's the thing about this is that. We have created a society of never enough. Correct. Okay, so it's an endless hole, right? You you know, by design, the feed on your Instagram keeps going. By design, the feed on your feed on your thing keeps going. The videos, you know, you know, there's a the Persuasion Institute out of Stanford. You know, these guys that were there went into YouTube, Google, Facebook, Snapchat, um, Twitter, and 
they, you know, you have no chance. When you click on one of those links, there are 1,000 people plus all this stuff feeding into an AI algorithm. You have no chance, right? And so it's an endless hole. It's never enough. It's keeping us dissatisfied, right? I mean, I know people who have a girlfriend, right, or a boyfriend, have a Bumble or Tinder account, swipe are on there all the time, check out every girl that walks by, right, has a side girl or side guy, right? It's never enough, right? Never enough. It's like, when is it? When is it enough? Um, and so the, for, for children especially, um, they should really not be in front of a screen before two years old. And the reason why is they're so, your brain develops so rapidly during those first two years of life that you should not be in front of a screen before two years old. And then any time after that, it should be limited to at least two hours a day. Um, anything that is done should be interactive so and slow-paced. So, for example, there you, it's a cartoon and they're learning colors or shapes or animals, for example. So by interactive, they show you it and then they kind of hit mm -hmm. the iPad or something. And then, but here's where it's important where parents come in is that there's a transfer of learning. So after they do whatever it is, that cartoon, you go out and when you're at the dog park, you're walking downtown or you're in the car, you say, oh, there's the car, just like you saw in that video. Or reinforce, there's a doggy. Reinforce what they're learning. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So they understand that those things exist outside of that context. Um, one thing as far as teens is parents should download the apps that their teens or children are using and get familiar with how they work. Yeah. Okay. Start learning them, how to follow your child or, or teen, you know, whatever it is. Go ahead. Educating the parents on these apps. Oh. How do you sell that to a 17-year-old or 16-year-old girl, like, boy or girl, like, hey, you know, my dad's following me on Instagram and watching, like, you know what I mean? Like, how, that's a tough, um, tough relational skill to, like, you know, my dad's watching everything I do. You know, I'm the punk kid that my parents are watching my web browser and then they're going to get apps that hide the apps and this and that. Like, it's, I don't know, it just seems, it seems... Seems like an endless un hole. Unrealistic, yes. An endless hole. So, in, 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 but it's so important. Who's paying for the phone? Take away the Mom phone. Mom or dad, yeah. Cut off the phone. Mm -hmm. I mean... I, the reason why is children have not developed the the area of the brain that mitigates the risk for addiction. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to substances, when it comes to media, children are at more risk at developing addiction because they don't have the stop gaps in their brain mm -hmm. that adults do, right? And so that is why it's just so important. 17 years old, you know, again, it's not you know, and explaining. So I think it it's really coming to your child in like, look, these are the risks. It's not finger wagging. Mm -hmm. These, if you have a, a female, these are the risks. 
Don't accept friend requests from people you don't know. Make passwords hard to remember and hard to get to. Write them down. Keep them in a drawer. Set up to code verification where I'm the the second one, mm-hmm. you know, um, and explain to them this is for your protection. I'm not trying to monitor you. I'm not going to, you know, police you. I'm not going to comment on, on these <laughs> stuff. I am just here to make sure you're safe. Yeah. And then also probably like demonstrating those same skills. Not having your phone at personal, the table. Yeah. On your own personal device. Not telling right. the kids that you can't do it while mom's over here doing it. Right. So I want to... So this is something, this this hardship inoculation. Tech has made things so easy for children. And what we have found is that when things are too easy, it doesn't set you up well. For success. Yeah. Right. So you need hardships in life. So, for example, when people do harder questions and then they get easier questions on the same subject, they do better, right? When preseason basketball players um, have a more strenuous preseason schedule, they do and win more games. So the idea here is that our children have a low frustration tolerance, right? They can't handle their emotions. We're, we're right now, the the uh, generation that's just coming up, right, is the most addicted, most lonely, most depressed. Is it? Did all of our minds just happen to crack all at once in the past ten or fifteen? No, years? there's something influencing. Something's you. up, yeah. right? Something's up. What is it? I'm sure that plays a role. Also, probably the food that we eat. Well. <laughs> so, but yeah, definitely that. Definitely social media and just media in general. Yeah, well, you're talking to someone who's never owned a television, you know, and 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 I don't know what it was, but I think uh, there's always been something creepy about mass media to mm-hmm. me, you know, and they have. It's just they they put things. It just it's too convenient. I see things. Let's take um, you know my uh, my friend was telling me about a story where this uh, guy raped this uh, this teenager, right? And that is so common, especially when you get into this. You're going to see more kids, more teens being preyed on by grown men because we live in a society where grown men don't feel like they can compete, right, with women, right, out there. And, and for better or for worse, that's where we are. I mean, it's much easier to prey on a vulnerable, a vulnerable person mm-hmm. than it is to actually court someone your own age but where did they even come from well i was watching uh, something it was on primetime television and in the middle i think it was an award show and in the middle of the thing and i kind of wasn't even really watching it i think it was just on in the background i was at someone's house and uh and i they're they're doing their monologue and in the middle of it they said something about raping a 14 year old and I looked up and I looked around and I thought, did anyone, <laughs> did anyone just, is that, did that seem weird to anyone? Mm. What are they teaching us? Right? Look at the pornography. 
Right. Unfortunately, I I have to deal with the fallout. Yeah. Of on a daily basis. That. Yeah. Right. Of that trauma, men, male and female. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, one out of four, one out of six people have been sexually assaulted, sexually harassed, and and you know, and the the and so, but. Where are we getting the idea? Why are we so quick to objectify the other? Right? Someone older, younger, different race, different sexuality, different national origin, different education background, different geographic. Like, they have us infighting and fighting against ourselves and fighting within ourselves and, and planning so much temptation in every way, substances, sex, drugs, shopping, gambling. And you start looking and you take a step back and you're like, okay. And, and, I, and I've been, you know, knowing about these things. You know, I often say this, especially when I'm talking to other therapists, knowing how the media works, knowing about anger or depression or whatever, doesn't inoculate you from it. Doesn't, you're not immune to these things. No, sure. You know, I've had my own issue with, whatever it is and and so but understand that's where mindfulness comes into this Mm -hmm. play is being aware and about where am i getting these ideas where did i just get that thought from like investigating right Mm -hmm. and understanding we're not our thoughts Mm -hmm. and really taking a step back and saying one degree and just saying oh that's interesting Oh, ooh, wow. Well, that was interesting. <laughs> just, you know, yeah. getting our thoughts and rolling with them, thinking that they're us, even our emotions, you know, where these things come from. And uh, some ways that they're making it so addictive is first, they have goals. For us, sell shit. Yeah. Well, I think you hit it, and then this is also the the, the feedback mechanism on the thing is you're looking for numbers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Fitbit, right? That's electronic. Yep. I your see. numbers. You're gonna you're gonna try and beat the number <laughs> that you had before. <laughs> My mom you know, told me the other day. She said. Yep, I I did so many steps. Dad went out and he had to go to the gym because he had to beat me, mm-hmm. right? But okay, that's one thing. And and again, I did twenty three minutes on the treadmill today, right? And that's uh, okay, like two point seven eight miles. But when you are pushing yeah. past injuries, mm-hmm. right, and hurting yourself, mm-hmm. and then it it's addictive, mm-hmm. you know. And and I want to be very clear here is that the dialectic here is that technology is great. Technology is positive. Technology can help us. However, technology has a dark side mm-hmm. to it. And it's <clears throat> in it, we better get hit to the game quick. Well, it's like if you take a step back and you look at like the human race, right? Like yeah. yeah. We, we, you know, this technology has developed faster than we can comprehend and learn how to use it. Oh, yeah. Right? So like... We've been walking this planet for however many hundreds of thousands of years, right? And in this country, we, less than 200 years ago, discovered that it wasn't okay to 
own and sell and trade living beings, right? Like slavery was okay 200 years ago. We've been walking. So it took us that many hundreds of thousands of years to well, I mean, learn that. 50 or 60 years yeah, ago. Yeah, even I mean, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, today, that, yeah, right? Today. So, yeah, that like, it's not okay. We got slavery in prisons. Yeah. In, you're, you're right. You're yeah. dead on. So it's taken us that long just to like make like a smidgen of an improvement on the way we treat each other. How long is it going to take us? And the technology is growing so fast that how long is it going to take us to learn how to use it in a way that promotes health and wellness and all, you know, the things that allow us to, to thrive in life? Is it even possible? Oh, yeah. I don't even know. And I'm guilty as everybody else. Like I had healthy habits in early recovery, healthy screen time habits. Um, you know, one of the biggest things that that I did was I didn't necessarily limit my screen time. But at the end of the night, mm-hmm. it was like 830 at night, every night, phone goes off, mm-hmm. off, O-F-F, yes. on my bedside. And I'll read a book for 30 minutes. Right? Okay. To allow my brain to kind of like wind down and get let that reward system kind of settle mm-hmm. and put myself in. And what that did was that gave me a great night's sleep. Yes. Right? Now you with, weren't exposed to the blue light. I wasn't exposed to the light and the the release from the likes mm-hmm. and the shares and the interactions and whatever. But yes, social we, interactions one way they make all of these things addictive. But now that especially we, video games. Now that we've been doing this podcast for a year, I don't do that anymore. And I get and I justify my behavior because of the business or because mm-hmm. of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, I'm just working, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'll, all I'm doing is looking at the same, looking at the numbers or looking at the views or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I'm just I'm just like by design. That's by, by design. Totally by design. But then I'm just I'm not, um, I'm justifying it. I'm completely justifying it and saying like, it's okay because it's, this is my, my goals and my dreams and Mm -hmm. this work's going to pay off in the long run. But then what happens? I can't get to sleep. When I do put the phone down, when I do close the laptop, I'm tossing and turning in bed and I find myself wanting to reach for it, Mm -hmm. stopping myself, even though it's turned off, you know, like, Oh yeah. So there's two things there. There's this blue light. Mm-hmm. And the so you can set your phone to like a warm screen at a certain time where it won't affect kind of the uh, melatonin production. Um, and you can do that on your television too. Um, I do recommend that. And then also you're exactly right. You um, are experiencing, I mean, it's a habit. And so cue process reward here. So there's a cue you want to look at the phone because you are um, whatever it is. And you take a screenshot, let's say, of your last time you looked at it, you know, and you look at that you see the numbers and then that kind of satisfied or whatever it is. You look at your Fitbit, something that yeah. gives you that kind of same satisfaction because that's exactly what you're getting to. There's also an app that you can buy that actually takes the numbers game out of it because that okay. is what it is. So instead of 54 people like this picture, people like this picture instead of two shares, sh- people shared this takes the reward away, takes the numbers yeah. out because again, the numbers you're exactly right. You, that social interaction is where it is and that feedback, right? Mm-hmm. So 
anything you go to now. So the the biggest thing is is like the polls online on feedback uh, on Facebook where it's like and you you do the poll and then it tells you what everyone else yeah. that yeah. is addictive. That yeah. is that's a design to be addictive. Um the the um the Tinder, the swiping, when you get a star and it and it and it vibrates or it, it does the blue thing or whatever, when you hit like on Facebook it, it goes doop or it does that. Yeah, the sound effect. When you yeah. scroll down, they found out that it's like a slot machine so that when you scroll down, it activates the dopamine reward. They actually trickle in your um, notifications so that, say, if 50 people like your notification all at once, um, you will get, you know, 10 people like this or then a few minutes later, a couple people so that they keep you coming back and they keep that variable reward coming. And it, and it has to be a variable reward because it, that's what's most addictive. Um, uh, so well, where does it end? What do we like? So what do we do about it? Yeah. Good question. The first step is knowledge. Mm-hmm. Educating yourself, understanding that, again, when you are clicking on something, you are essentially powerless. There are 1,000 other people who have designed that, you know, um, knowing that, uh, you know, just understanding the the neuroscience behind pornography, video games, um, shopping, you know, um, all the, the, the Facebook, the Snapchats, the Tinders, Um is it true that like 75, they say that like 75 or more percent of like the internet's usage is porn? Is it a high number? I've heard um, numbers are high before. I know if it's that high. Mm-hmm. The pornography is probably the one thing that I'm getting the most male clients on, mm-hmm. um, private practice. Yeah. Um, and uh, that is a huge... <laughs> So yeah. w- the young guys are not having sex the way that they should be. Um, when they're and they're learning unhealthy sexual habits through porn. Well, it goes even just more basic than that. So if you look at erectile dysfunction, um, you know numbers are like fifty four percent right now for guys sixteen young to thirty five, and that used to be flipped ten years ago. Yeah. It used to be guys fifty five and older that were the those were the numbers. And the reason why is because it's just very Pavlovian, really, is like, you know, you know, I'm I'm associating this screen or this phone with getting aroused. And so when that is not around, it's hard for for that yeah. mechanism to happen. So you have people having sex with, you know, their phone nearby with porn on or their computer, whatever it is. Um so and, and again, it's so addictive. You have comments in the porn section. You got a feed that's in the porn section. It escalates. So you start with some vanilla of something, and then all of a sudden you're watching the most extreme version of that. YouTube is the same way. I mean, all of these things are designed to kind of keep Netflix, the cliffhangers, right? So one way to, to is I call it deflating the cliffhang. So you get through a scene, they're going to cliffhang you, get start the next show five minutes in, and then stop it. You still get the dopamine rush because our brain loves a story. We get rewarded for a story, hearing something beginning, middle, and end. So your brain still gets that, but you're you don't have that urge to keep to keep watching. That's why people binge watch. Exactly. 
and it exactly is a binge watch. It's yeah. it's uncontrollable. You will find when I mean when Instagram went down, um, yeah, like a week ago, right. and people were yeah. freaking out. Yeah, you know they were they were like, oh, I have kids, or you know, yeah. oh, you know. Well, the whole binging like mentality is culturally totally acceptable. Like you'll go on there and people po- like post them like, what's the next binge worthy show? Like asking for recommendations on th- shows to binge watch, you know, like. So, yeah. And so taking judgment out of that, okay. right. Uh-huh. You know, it's interesting. It's just kind of yeah. like I, you know, as a social scientist, essentially, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. And, and, and looking at things in my life and hearing things from my friends and, the people around me and the patients, I mean, co-workers and, and, and really getting, you know, what led me down this road was I was having a, a pattern of people coming in with video game addiction or social media addiction or pornography. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? There is something up here. And what is it? And so I started going down that rabbit hole and it has been, it's been fascinating to say the least. Um, yeah. Now the porn is um it, the porn is affects like, working memory. Yeah, but it there's not a whole lot that can like be done as far as like regulating what's out there cuz it's protected by the first amendment. Yeah. So like that content of porn is yeah. rarely an issue it can be for some yeah. patients, but um it's that they feel they don't want to watch it anymore. Or you know, there's some in there. It's 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 affecting their sex life. You know, I mean, these guys are behind a screen when they should be out there actually chasing real people. Mm-hmm. How much? And then it fact, leads to loneliness. That, I was going to say, how much of a factor is loneliness Anxiety. contributing Depression. to them seeking that out, or is it just easier exactly. to go to a screen than it is to talk yep. to a girl? When I well, and then you add in just, all the that they you know, grew up in front of a screen. So yeah. it becomes this whole, we're in a mess. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But, um, what was the last question you asked me? I, uh, loneliness. How, how much of a factor is loneliness the play? M- a lot of the men are surprised. They say, Bo, I did not expect, you know, my depression and my anxiety and my social anxiety, especially to go away. Once they abstain or seriously cut back, you know, and there's a difference between masturbating and masturbating to pornography, you know, and being very clear that we're, you know, masturbation and even to a certain degree, masturbation with pornography can be part of a healthy lifestyle. But we're not we're not targeting masturbation unless, mm-hmm. again, this is a sex addiction. But this is more what I'm treating as more electronic, you know, this kind of thing. And there's a lot of sometimes trauma in people's backgrounds or very rigid households you'll find where like they grew up in a very Christian or, you know, they weren't allowed to talk about these things and sex was not talked about. Yeah. But still, even like today, it's just too accessible. (laughs) It's so much easier to just. And that's the. Like. Yes. When we were kids, you had to like go seek it out. There was, there was steps to whatever you're trying, you know, whatever you're trying to accomplish. There's right. steps, action that needed to be taken. Right. Right. And today it's not the case. Right. It's so easy for everything. And that's why we expect things to be easy mm-hmm. for us. And so when a girl or a guy doesn't, oh, dude, 
Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, like, just immediately yeah. kind of get on board. It's like, okay, on you know, on to the next one. Yeah. You know, on to the next one. All right, it's just on to on and on and on. Trouble is we we find like very limited satisfaction in that moment. Okay, I mean guilty as charged. I mean, I'm not ta- I'm not speaking from a pedestal here. I'm mm-hmm. speaking, you know, because sure. I know what this is like, you know? And and so uh what happens is is that we are satisfied in that moment, but then we realize, oh shit. It's fleeting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like what 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 is this? You know, I don't know. It's it. It's all intertwined. It's all these things that we've talked about tonight is just so connected from the intentions behind the media and the way that we seek it to the behaviors, whether it's porn or Facebook or um, whatever. It, they're just so like interconnected and then the technology is just advancing so fast i mean there's the latest and greatest phones are coming out right now you know that do twice as much stuff and i don't know man <laughs> so here's the thing and you hit on something you know we've only been in these concrete places and jungles for 150 200 years right we used to be one with the earth. We used to grow our own food. We used to touch the dirt and be with the land, one with the land. We used to be able to know the seasons. And, you know, even now you have a hospital room with a window in it or even just a painting of nature. You go out in nature, anxiety goes down, heart rate goes down, breathing starts regulating, blood flow regulates. You heal faster when you go out into nature. So nature is intrinsically healing, and we're losing a core part of something. And again, you know, this is this weapon, this thing is meant to be kind of not able to fully articulate well. And then when people start talking about it, right, or so people start saying, "Yeah, I just, I, yeah, I just don't," something doesn't feel right. People start being like, "Oh, you know." get on board or whatever it is but we all know that you know we get up we go to work and we're making money and we and we're like okay i'm being paid x amount of money you know to do whatever it is and short of owning your own business or anything like that you are just kind of this we are just kind of this cog in this wheel and this and and we keep on we keep on you know it's funny to me i just don't you know every new tax hike or every new insurance thing that comes up you get we get a letter we go oh your rates are going up we're like oh okay you know just accept it yeah i just (laughs) to me i just i've never i'm kind of like you in this like i've never been and this is why social work called to me right i've never been one of those ones to just be like that's how the status quo is okay mm-hmm. to me. And, and I see this in people too. It can always be better in myself. I can always be better. I can always be a better friend, always be a better lover, always be a better therapist, always be a better employee, um, you know, always be better, you know? And that's, I think the point where I'm trying to get to is just raising consciousness and, and helping people because people help me. Mm-hmm. 
and um, and we all need a helping hand. And, you know, that doesn't mean not calling people on their stuff. I work with a lot of personality disordered folks, a lot of antisocials, a lot of borderline personality disordered people and uh, people with struggling with those. And so there's a lot of, you know, wrestling with your own demons, I think, in this kind of work and sorting those out. And um, I wouldn't choose anything else. Yeah. Sounds like you're tackling a lot of uh, a lot of these issues. Try loneliness. Yeah. Um, Ooh, that's a killer. It is um, something I struggled with early, mm-hmm. and there was like a shift in thought process, mostly through like my meditation practice mm-hmm. and stuff, because it was like had been driven home to like. Be with what is, be with what is, feel it, mm-hmm. be aware of it and feel it, kind of like lean into it. Um, I went through a pr- pretty traumatic breakup in early recovery with somebody who I was with like before recovery. Mm-hmm. And like there was a period of time where like it was challenging. And for some reason, like this time, I like learned to embrace it and like really was like, okay, this being lonely is so like gut-wrenchingly uncomfortable that this is what I need to work with Mm -hmm. because it's so uncomfortable because it's causing such a internal issue. I recognize that I needed to face it and I needed to work with it and learn to kind of embrace it and be with it. Um, But it was so challenging So here's the thing about our emotions. They are uncomfortable for a reason because they are trying to get you to act. Every emotion has a set of actions that come with it and loneliness. And this is what typically happens is we feel loneliness. We, we feel the feeling It's so uncomfortable and somewhere in there we attribute that feeling as I'm not worth or I can't connect with you identify with or I'm Mm -hmm. not able to or I am not like those or I am something different and we instead of understanding that loneliness is uncomfortable for the reason that it is literally trying to get you up and out of your couch and out of the house and connecting with people. As soon as you do that, loneliness will go away. Loneliness is uncomfortable because it's trying to motivate you to get out, and, and but we, we misattribute it and we say, oh, I can't. I mean, it feels so awful that you just can't. You know, you it's so almost get out and to change any emotion you just do the opposite of whatever the action urge is you know so loneliness sadness is going to get you isolated you're going to withdraw so to change that emotion right now get up get out connect. go connect healthy connect exactly yeah. anger i'm angry at steven oh i'm so angry at steven right i'm <laughs> i'm never gonna forgive steven right uh-huh. So I may not want to do something. So the the action urge for anger is attack. So I may not want to do any, you know, I may want to attack you, but I can't. (laughs) Or I may have, I may have cussed you out and I walk out 
And I'm still feeling angry because when you act on an emotion, so the more I withdraw, the more I isolate, the more I get sad, the more I cuss you out, yell, scream, punch, the more angry, the angrier I'm going to get. But if I go out here and the desk lady says, have a good night, and I say, thank you, have a good night, and I throw her a $5 tip, anger is going to immediately go away because I did something nice. I did the opposite of what that action urge was. Kill them with kindness. Yes. But, and it works for all the emotions, you know, sadness, you know, guilt, shame, anger, fear. Fear is an important one. I have a lot of people who come in and say, I can't ask people out on a date. I can't talk to people. Right? Been there. Right? Yeah. And so I say, okay, so your homework is to ask four people out by the next time I see you next week. Okay. And then So the, so the fear action urge is to what? Run away. Run away. Fear right. of rejection. Right. Fear of, mm-hmm. right. Fire, flight. Mm-hmm. Most like we're, we're going to avoid. So we're avoiding. I'm, a, I'm afraid of flying on airplanes. I'm going to avoid getting there. I'm going to drive anytime I could fly. You know, I'm afraid, afraid of talking to girls. I'm afraid of talking to men. I'm going to avoid, you know, doing that. So to change that emotion, you approach, right? So I'm afraid of elevators. Instead of taking the stairs, I'm going to get on the elevator. And then once I learn that I'm going to reach to the top, I'm going to land in the plane, you know, because fear fits the facts when your life, well-being, and health are in danger. Natural response. Right. So when you're craving and you have anxiety, we misattribute that as, oh, I need to self-medicate this, I need to use, I need that drink, I need that whatever it is. When in fact, your brain and body are so in tune that that anxiety is like you're about to discharge from the hospital, you're about to discharge from you know that sober living home, you're about to, and you have that anxiety. And we're like, oh shit, see, I knew that. Well, I should, idea. I yeah. should use, I should mm-hmm. use, whatever it is. No, that anxiety crept up because it, understood that somewhere in your environment it's uncomfortable because your life health and well-being are in danger you're in danger of relapse and it's trying to get you to stand up and notice whenever you feel fear you should look up and you should say all right something is up in my environment something something is trying to get my attention love same way right there's a mating opportunity right it's like oh oh woo you know and you're like okay emotions are strong because they want you to get pay attention to something in your environment 85 percent of the time your emotions are correct that 15 percent of the time you know trauma whatever it is there's going to be false alarms and so so anyway i could i could i could talk all day i got another time man <laughs> um the cbd stuff man yeah you know i've had like different conversations with different people both in long-term recovery. Um, I've read a lot, some of the research. I've heard good things. My personal experience um, didn't really, didn't really, uh, I I didn't, I wasn't really a fan of it personally, Mm -hmm. but I've, you know, um, people, that I know have experienced some pretty significant results from it. Mm-hmm. And so I would like to know like what your thoughts are on, um, on what's out there. Cause it's like the latest craze, you know, it's everywhere you look and it is. it's like, it, I definitely like, I definitely know that it's not the cure all that, 
again, probably the media is making it out to be. Um, so there's something to be said to, for placebo effect, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, what with I anything. mean, mm-hmm. right, exactly. So what I mean by placebo effect is that does not mean a fake or false intervention getting a fake or false result. In fact, often it's something that is, you know, maybe just inert or something that, and you get a very real outcome and that we can measure using, you know, biofeedback or MRI scans or whatever it is that, that we need to measure that result from. We know a lot of our research from placebos in, in the area of pain. Um, so when it comes to anxiety and it comes to things like that, I think, you know, again, there's some sort of, there's an expectancy when it comes to things like inflammation. Um, there's real documented evidence that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, the endocannabinoid system actually is, is there to help regulate the inflammation and so inflammation causes aging causes all sorts of things so in that regard there is some good documented evidence and in the mitigation of alcohol withdrawal it can reduce withdrawal symptoms you should always go of course when you're withdrawing from alcohol to a detox or to a medical facility but you know i see in the future right in those facilities them utilizing cbd okay um CBD also cuts down on the reward of alcohol and the way CBD actually um, really has an effect on every part of the breakdown of alcohol as it's metabolized. And so you're not going to get a high motivation or reward to drink so it can reduce craving. Hmm. Um, so that is where, as far as recovery, I, I see kind of it being utilized beyond any like medical things um uh psychiatrically again i think you know again same thing with thc you know the the results are are mixed um they you know some studies it's like you know really helps with pain other studies doesn't help with pain actually exacerbates pain you know we know that from uh, that opiate uh, opiates uh, do that they exacerbate pain um they um so Again, um, I think it's useful, yeah. but um, more research and application. And you know, I, I I think just being not getting caught up in the newest crave and just being careful and maybe under the care and recommendation of your doctor. Well, of course, yes. Because yeah. it's just like they're well, it's just like it's well, on the side of the road. People the weird can just thing go. about cannabis and all this is that it's opposite of what we usually do. Yeah. Right. So uh-huh. we have, because of politics, have not been able to research it. So we actually don't really know a lot about what its effects are. Right. And that's mm-hmm. just starting to come out. Yeah. Um, and it's legal. And it's, and it's, and so it's a, just an interesting dynamic that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I know Asheville's had them for a considerable amount of time, but just like wh- about a month ago, our first little CBD dispensary opened up down mm-hmm. the road. Mm-hmm. So I popped in there to talk to the guy mm-hmm. and just see like what he was selling and what was going on. And um, he described a lot of what you just described today. Mm-hmm. And so I tried a little bit of the tincture. I had about a month prior 
injured myself playing basketball. 30, mm-hmm. 37 years old, I can't hit the basketball court like I used to. Mm-hmm. Tore my MCL up, and that affected my um, exercise routine. Yeah. You know, I was hitting the, I hit the gym three to four times a week, mostly cardio. Yeah. Um, and it pretty much like put that to a screeching halt. Did a knee brace. I mean, it was like, it was so much pain. I didn't go to the doctor cause I'm uninsured. Should have gone to the doctor, I'm sure. But so I did a, bought a little knee brace, um, because it was so painful that I couldn't walk up the steps at my house. Mm-hmm. Like it was bad. And, uh, so I did the knee brace for like three to four weeks, started feeling a little bit better, took the knee brace off, first time back to the gym, hurt it, hurt it again. Like mm-hmm. it just, just painful, you know? Um, so I tried a little bit of the CBD mm-hmm. and the two things that I noticed was number one, it just tasted too much like cannabis mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. So it was like, it was kind of like, well, if I'm going to go through all this do all this stuff. I might as well just get high. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. just, it was just too close. Like I f- my being aware of like my mind and my body, I felt like it made me feel like something was missing mm-hmm. because I wasn't high. Mm-hmm. You know, it made me feel like something was missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then number two, like it did a lot of people have talked about like helping them with sleep and that sort of thing. It did not help me with sleep. It made me, I had trouble going to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Once I fell asleep, I got a good night's sleep. However, I woke up groggy as hell in the morning. Yeah. And, um, but so what, your but, endocannabinoid system is already regulating very yeah. well. And uh-huh. so you add in something exogenous to it, exogenous to it, you're mm-hmm. going to, you know, it's going to, it's going to, your brain's going to have to adjust. Um, but so it did help. With, I'm not it surprised. did help with the knee. It did like the knee. Oh yeah, because the knee the bounced back. Absolutely. Yeah, the inflammation it swelled down. Yeah. I was able to get right yep. back on the treadmill. The research is actually pretty good on that. Um, yeah, so inflammation and uh, injuries. Um, yeah, so let's stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> Psychiatrically, I think the the most promising is in psychosis. is where we find that it can really be an adjunctive therapy to the um uh a tip more of the uh the antipsychotic medications using cbd Hmm. with them can really help that's interesting and then like another one of my friends same thing like we went there together and she's experienced Great results. Now, it could mm-hmm. be some of that placebo stuff we were talking mm-hmm. about, or mm-hmm. it could be, you know. There's even placebo in therapy. Yeah. You know, I, I all the patients that go see me in private practice, like, they all leave feeling better the first session. And, I mean, we haven't, I mean, we, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. Just by paying attention to someone, mm-hmm. we're changing neurobiology. Yeah. You know, we're activating oxytocin. And they're going into it with some positive mindset, expecting, ex- hopefully expecting yes. results. Yes. People have told them, "Hey, you're gonna you're gonna get better or whatever." Was a badass. Yes. Yeah. So uh-huh. you're gonna get that positive expectancy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You, you show them some right. On you the show button. them some good attention. They're expecting yep. results. They get the results. Yep. Yep. And then so there's a placebo effect even in therapy, and I tell them that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm holding the punches. I said, "Look, you're gonna feel better. There's gonna be a time where you plateau. That's okay. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll get past it." Yeah. Um. You know, I think the the big thing with THC and MDMA and CBD and and all of the psilocybin LSD is that we keep an open mind. Um, 
that we talk openly as professionals, as people in recovery about these things, that we're not scared away by politics, political correctness. It's still pretty taboo. Anything like that. Um, you know, I, you know, I am not a full, you know, I'm not, I understand why the medical model has become so prevalent, but that is not, does not describe addiction. And that's not the accurate view of addiction from, from my viewpoint. Um, if that were the case, then, you know, just giving someone Suboxone or Methadone or something would do the trick. Right. And it just doesn't. Yeah. You know, there's so, and that's where the power of social work comes in. You know, social work says, well, uh, Stephen's depression, Stephen's anxiety looks different when Stephen has insurance and $1,500 in the bank and a car and a job and a girlfriend. Damn straight. You get what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Versus when he's struggling paycheck to paycheck, mm-hmm. he's making low wages, whatever it is, you don't have a car, you're lonely, you don't have a partner your depression, your anxiety is going to look way different. Yeah. Dude, I'm living and, proof of that. Right. And that is the power of social work yeah. is that we see things from a systems perspective. We don't think think that it's just you. And I often tell my patients, there's nothing wrong with you. Often you are reacting normally to some messed up situations that have happened. Mm-hmm. Look at the society. It is no... It's no... Uh, indication of well-being to be functioning well in a sick society. Yeah. Right? There just isn't. And so to be a little depressed, to be a little anxious, to be a little angry, well, I'd say given the world that we're in right now, that is pretty typical. Uh, Right? uh, So let's work through that. Let's unpack this. Uh How do do we get through this? The The question is, how do we live in this world? How do we live in this world? We're all just walking each other home. Yeah. Right, and that's my, one of my it. favorite quotes. Yeah, I've heard it. You know, and it's on my Psychology Today thing and on my um, Open Path thing. It's, and I really do believe that. You know, we're all just walking each other. I don't know. I don't. I don't have this figured out any more than you do. Mm-hmm. And I learn so much. I'm inspired. You know, what better group, seriously, to be around than a group of men or a group of people who are in recovery, who are wanting. And mindfully trying to make better lives and better people themselves. Yeah. What better group of it, what more inspiring group of people are there? I don't know of any. And I learn and get inspired so much by my patients that I pray that they learn as much as I learn from them. Because this is a, this is a feedback cycle, you know, and... Um, you know, there is a altruism high or helpers high. There's a documented brain state. When you volunteer, when you help someone, you get rewarded. You know, I can walk into work. This is the one awesome thing about my job is I could, I could be like, oh, you know, I don't want to go to work, whatever, you know, cause we all have this. Age, Absolutely. You know? And you go into work, you see, I see my patients and I start doing it and I leave feeling on top of the world. I leave feeling mm-hmm. good. Even if it was a challenging day, it's still rewarding because you're helping people. And I think if there's anything that I could say about that social work is that I get to make money without solely selling something mm-hmm. and just making a profit. Like, you know. Uh, you're selling life, man. Well, hope. Hope. Maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, show, you know, what I say to my patients, I said, look, I said, my job as your therapist is you're in the storm and your umbrella has like flipped over. You're getting rained on. You're trying to pull that back, you know, pull the umbrella back. 
my job is to help you get the umbrella back situated. You can't see where the clouds part and the sun starts shining, but I can. And so I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to get a little wet too. Okay, it's okay, but let's try to get through this as fast as we can. <laughs> and we're, I'm going to get you to where you see the sun shining. And once you see the sun shining, kind of exactly. And so that's how I see my job. And for different people, it's different things. You know, and and for some people, it's they can't see a life without video games. For some people, it's that they go to threatening suicide and cutting themselves or burning themselves or drugs at the any frustration. So it, it's different for different people. And then and then the dialectic is once that is, you know, because you have the thesis, you have that the antithesis, and then you create the synthesis. So once you solve, say, addiction and you're in a sober living house, then you have to get a job. Then that creates one. Then you have to keep the job. Then you have to get... Then you have to pay that back child. Then you, you mm-hmm. know, so everything creates an uh, equal and opposite reaction. You know, during Barack Obama's tenure, we had a, uh, again, you know, black president rise in hate groups, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You have a the president we have now, <laughs> and <laughs> you have uh, a, a rise in minorities and women mm-hmm. in power. Yeah. That's yeah. dialectics. Yeah. And that is, you know, you can love getting high and also realize it's ruining your life. Mm-hmm. I can love you and hate you. And, and that's okay. And that's okay. And that, yeah. and non judgmentally understanding that, okay, that's okay. And integrating these experiences. Oh, yeah, been there, done that, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't, and I think that's the attachment. And that's not being mindful, right? We're, we're still that gangbanger. We're still mm-hmm. that. You know, the, the, we're selling, we're, we're hustling something else now, but we're we're still there. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, let's incorporate that, and let's you know hustle sober living houses. Yeah. Right. Let's let's be in, let's take that and let's be an um, a legitimate entrepreneur. Let's let's take what you were saying that rebel side of you and let's create a podcast that gets these ideas out there. You know, mm-hmm. let's 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 funnel that into something. That is more pro-social. Yeah. And not just like um, benefit yourself, but benefit society or your community or whoever it is. Um, yeah. It's a lot to deal with, man. Yeah. How do you how do you balance all that from your personal life, man? I like, have great friends mm-hmm. that put up with way more than they should <laughs> for me. Um, uh, I have great baristas. Uh, <laughs> that make wonderful smoothies and lattes for me. I exercise. Um, I read. I uh, sleep a lot. I like sleeping. I, I, um, you know, that's one of my coping skills. And, and there's a good hard reset I can do. You know, I just like okay, go to sleep, and then I wake up, and it's like, what was I worried? About? You know. And so I like sleeping. There's so much we could talk. We could do a whole podcast on sleep. Sleepiness, sleep, and dreams is so fascinating. Do to me. you, with your work, uh, where you work, do you know any doctors or anybody that specialize in sleep? Oh uh, well, we have the, we have the neuro. Sleep? We have the yeah. like so. Dude. We do that like if they're doing like seizures. Or yeah, something. yeah, yeah. Uh, that's something that that's a topic that's been on my radar. Yeah, 
I would like for you and somebody to, somebody to come back and let's do an entire podcast about sleep that at would, some point down the road. Let me do some digging. Yeah. Let me see who would. I put a, uh, you, my, you must have missed it. Like a, it might have even been before we were friends. Like two or three months ago, I put some posts out there like, hey, anybody know any mm, neuroscientist sleep. or any sleep yeah. pathologist or anybody that specializes in sleep and specifically like the neuroscience behind what happens while you're sleeping and the importance of healthy well, sleeping habits okay, and stuff well, like that. I could, I could speak to that. So, okay, well, let's, well, for one, uh-huh. you, your brain is more lit up. You know, if I were to do a scan of your brain while you're sleeping, you are more awake mm-hmm. than right now. Um, you do 95% of your physical and psychological healing in your sleep. So, like, when you're, like, getting rest from sleep, from being sick or having a physical injury, your body is repairing itself. You're consolidating memories. You are problem-solving in your sleep. Have you ever heard the term just sleep on it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so That's that, scientific. I've heard of scientific data behind it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. You, so in the first 45 minutes that you're sleeping, you actually go through your whole day. So... You, so when you first fall asleep, you actually replay. And I mean, so well that if I were to hook you up, if I were to put, you know, monitor your every movement and then I were to hook you up to your brain and then monitor it on a screen, Mm -hmm. I could tell exactly in your day where you were by where, by your brainwaves in your dream. Absolutely. Uh, Kittens. I see. I could kittens have the same. A lot of our studies on sleep actually go are done on kittens because kittens mimic our human brain sleep waves the out of the best closest. Mm -hmm. Um, So like a a lot of the studies that we haven't been able maybe to do on on humans, we've done on kittens. Um, But anyway, so. I I find sleeping fascinating for a number of reasons. It's it's the most dangerous thing that humans actually do. Um, And every time I tell my patients that, they're like, what? So why would it be so dangerous? Any ideas? I don't know. So we are paralyzed and we're completely tuned out. So evolutionary psychologists have actually been, we actually don't even really know why we sleep. Let me just put that out there. So, but evolutionary psychologists have they have some good ideas about what happens and a lot of and what why we dream you know only mammals dream and so there's some speculation that that has to do with hunting and and being a predator and and so forth um but it's dangerous because we are prey and so that's why they have been so perplexed because they're like okay there has to be a very important reason why we do this because every single living thing from single-celled organisms to us has an active and a, and, a, and a resting phase. And so why? You know, and that is the per, that's a perplexing thing. And, and again, I think it goes back to consolidation of memories and, and you prune different neurons and you and so forth. But... Really, the, the, the mystery on sleep has not been solved yeah. of the why. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for <clears throat> individuals, like, say, in early recovery to, oh, like, yeah. form healthy sleeping habits because they've been so accustomed to not having those sleeping habits. That's probably even more crucial in, like, the repairment of the brain and 
developing neural pathways and stuff like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. How and 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 that's the that and and there's a set of skills that we say and they're and they're the pro evolutionary skills, mm-hmm. right? In the very beginning of recovery, these are the ones that you should focus on. And the reason why is because they get your brain back online the fastest because. Essentially, what you're, you know, dopamine and the things that you're using for drugs are dopamine's a neurotoxin at high levels. You know, you know, we need dopamine to run, and so if dopamine, you know, think of it as like, you know, going through the doors of Target, right? So d- Target needs 500 customers a day, right? So you get high on whatever it is. So instead of 500 customers trying to get through that door, you have 1,500 customers getting through that door, and so that's Black Friday. <laughs> then you have it's it's destroyed. Yeah, uh-huh. You have everything all over the place, and I like how you reinforce the the guests because that just gave me you know that just gave me a uh, but you have everything all over every all over the place, and you're like, what? How did this happen? So that's what drugs do to our brain, and and different drugs do different things at different parts of our brain, but ultimately you get an overflood, and so Target puts security guards at the door, so you block off that receptor. So then when you stop using, that's why you feel it becomes a fight feedback. Like you're like, oh my God, I feel like crap. This sucks. I have no joy. Boom. And then you flood the system again. Dopamine's a neurotoxin. puts more guards at more receptors. And then you feedback cycle. So then you, you're just blocking off the receptors. So in the beginning, it only takes a little while really to get to, you know, from abstaining before the security guards kind of come out and say, okay. Is he gonna? <laughs> am I gonna get a flood? Yeah. And then no, okay, I'm gonna take the security guard out. Things that help this along are exercise, right? This talking to people, getting into groups, going to meetings because of oxytocin, eating three times a day, sleeping, drinking water, having sex, cuddling. Um, music, music activates dopamine and, and dopamine, remember, is not, do I like something? Dopamine is, do I want something? Dopamine mm. modulates motivation. So that's why you pop in some earphones, you're like bumping down, you're ready to go. Mm. You're at the gym, you got headphones in because, and it gives you a little boost. You, get a little, you have a pep in your step. So these things in early recovery do as much of drink water exercise be around people because these are the things that will naturally our life naturally rewards you for because they're pro evolutionary you need those to survive and so the more you do those things the more being in nature those are the things and you'll find that that and we call these the please skills so please do those things and that is your foundation right there you know and then kind of build on that. Exactly. Once you've kind of Just established that, right. that basics. That's so. basics. Mm-hmm. That's basics. Because in our addiction, we, we're not drinking water. No. We're not eating, eating shit. three no. times a day no. in the mm-hmm. variety of food. And we're not sleeping. And we're not having the relationships we want with people. Somebody will be like going through a difficult time or something like that. And they'll go into my uh, wonderful advisor classroom or office and kind of spill their beans and guts three things she asked are you sleeping are you eating that's it like are you sleeping are you eating how's your sleep how's your diet you know simple things just Mm -hmm. basic stuff Mm -hmm. i find it fascinating how it's just all 
it was just all like interconnected all that all those things that you just described and the effects that they have um when i was in early recovery i spent the first four years only working on the mind through mm-hmm. meditation mm-hmm. i didn't give a fuck about fitness fit the physical mm-hmm. impacts any of that kind of stuff um it's strictly like learning my mind and learning how it works and repairing it and learning to live with it for the way that it was. Mm, Yeah. But then I realized that I was missing out on a large piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. That was the fitness aspect Mm -hmm. of it. Um, And so since then I've kind of within the last, this semester really uh, placed a just as much emphasis on the fitness side, mostly cardio just because of, uh, all the years of smoking and mm-hmm. damage done to my body and stuff like that, I've experienced significant results, mm-hmm. mental um, results from that today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I had a long-ass weekend, dude. Worked my ass off more hours than I wanted to. Just It was just a bum weekend. I didn't have any time for fun. The weather was beautiful all weekend. Mm-hmm. I didn't yeah. get outside. I was stuck inside working and... So today I was just dragging ass, dude, dragging ass and went through some meetings at school, did our meditation group, got out and I had like four hours to kill before I came here. And I, all I wanted to do was take a nap. Mm. Instead of taking a nap, I just made myself go to the gym mm-hmm. and get on that treadmill. Mm-hmm. I walked out of that gym with more energy than I woke up with this morning. Mm-hmm. Totally did. You get in the gym a lot? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you? I like the gym. Okay. I try to go when there's not a lot of people around. Yeah. Um, I try to sneak in and sneak out. Um, but uh, I do like the gym. Um, it's, you know, I've, um, yeah, I played sports in mm-hmm. high school. And so typically what you see, and this was true for me, is that you know, whatever kind of athletic or whatever exercise regimen you have in high school in that early part of your life, you know, early adulthood is what you tend to stick with. And that has been true for me. Um, you know, I don't try to get, I do do muscle, you know, I do, do resistance, you know, but in cardio, I like to dance and, but I don't, um, you know, it's more just maintaining, Mm -hmm. uh, um, adequate frame essentially oh yeah um, <laughs> you know but it's and that's interesting i caution my patients because a lot of times they will go from substance use to you know gaming or exercise addiction or um shopping or gambling or sex or, or serial relationships um so i you know i'm not cautioning you but you know and that's Again, where I find the medical model lacking and in, in, in often in, in recovery, I tell my patients because they think, well, because this idea that, oh, well, so-and-so can drink X amount and, and why can't I? And, it, and it, it's not that it's, the drugs aren't addictive necessarily. And, and they're like, well, what do you mean by the drugs are addictive? And and uh, I said, well, no, they're not because in what you're saying, you're, pr- you're, you're actually proving my point, right? Because 
if they were addictive, then everybody who had these, used these opiates, smoked, drank wine, would be addictive. But they're just not. And that is where we come in and we say, okay, what is, what's going on here? Because it's a, it's multifactorial. You know, there's, it's a perfect storm to create somebody that's clinically addicted. I mean, of all the people who use a substance, a very small majority are physically dependent, right? Mm-hmm. So if you took away my latte, right, you said no more soy vanilla lattes for you, Bo, right? And I would be, I would have a physical withdrawal, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm physically dependent on caffeine. Am I addicted to caffeine? No. Right? I'm not going to mm. go and, you know, I'm not going to continue beside, you know, beyond you're gonna, negative consequences. You're not going to go behind the counter at Starbucks and make your own latte. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> and, and so what is the thing that, that, that is, the, what are those things that are the perfect storm? And just educating on them and educating that it's not the drug. So let's take the drug out of this. Let's mm-hmm. take, because we get so focused on... So on that. Yeah. I got one for you yes. real quick because we're running yes. out of time. Yes. How these I, how these drugs interact with each other. Okay. I'm going to bounce a story off of you and I want your input. Um, I quit smoking cigarettes two years ago and I re- started vaping. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I vaped for two years and I decided that I, it was time to stop vaping. Mm-hmm. I'd had enough. I started experiencing some effects from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I decided I want to stop vaping. So used a nicotine replacement, mm-hmm. lozenge deal. Worked great. No cravings. Uh, weaned off of that. Did it for a little over a month. Like weaned down, mm-hmm. small dose of milligrams. Got all the way down to like breath mints, no nicotine. I was on no nicotine for about three weeks. Mm-hmm. 0%, nic- zero nicotine in my body. And I had an assignment in class to do a 10-day challenge where we give up something for 10 days and write a paper about it, kind of be aware of what it was like to Mm -hmm. give something up. Mm -hmm. So I decided, brilliant move on my part, I decided to give up coffee. Mm -hmm. Okay? So... (laughs) So I'm already feeling anxious. Are you? Yeah. It, it wasn't that bad, man. I didn't say caffeine. I just said coffee. Yeah. So I'd have like a nice uh, cup of tea in the morning before I left the house. And then maybe like a sugar-free monster or something later on in the afternoon, depending on what my day was like. The first five days were a piece of cake, literally minimal, um, minimal effects from not having coffee. The sixth day, my nicotine craving shot through the roof, like extreme nicotine cravings. You like scales? It's a 10. Mm-hmm. Okay. That day I bummed a cigarette from somebody that evening. I bought a pack of cigarettes and I smoked cigarettes the whole rest of the 10 day challenge. Mm-hmm. So it was like, you know, I, <laughs> so I would hesitate to say that that had anything to do with the caffeine Mm -hmm. um it would be interesting to figure out what was going on and during that day and and so forth and like you know whatever it was you know getting but again but then it could i don't know um interesting yeah it's really like i mean it didn't seem like life's been life's good the last Mm -hmm. year and a half I've been just really there, content and not like 
low stress, like, I don't know. I do want to say one thing about the CBD thing and uh, medications. CBD actually vir- almost virtually interacts with all medications. Okay. So you do, if you are going to take a tincture or anything like that, and you have a doctor, psychiatrist, um, preferably, you want to run that by them bio. and just make sure that you're not going to um, cause yourself any harm or just even nullify the effects of mm-hmm. another medication. I was taking that stuff at the time. I was, I'm not on any medications, but I was mm-hmm. taking the CBD yeah. at that time. I don't know. No telling? Yeah. It's interesting. Well, listen, man, you're a badass. Well, thank you. I appreciate you coming on. I really do. How can people connect with you if they're interested in checking out some of your services? Um, well, they can uh, find me on Psychology Today or Open Path where I do sliding scale. Um, yeah. So Awesome. Bo yeah. Hess? Thank you. You're a killer, man. I love it, dude. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. I can't wait to do it again. Thanks, Stephen. Y'all have a good night. You too. Thank you for listening to the podcast and a very special thank you to the Comfort Inn of Silver, North Carolina for providing the lovely recording space for us to record this and each episode of the podcast. They're located at 1235 East Main Street in Silver, North Carolina. And they're also a part of the Choice Hotels chain. Give them some love if you're visiting the area. Pop in, say hello, stay for a night or two. It's a a beautiful area and a beautiful time of year to visit the mountains of Western North Carolina. Thank you guys for tuning in. 